0: Dr. Louise Lubin, a clinical psychologist, has practiced adult, marital, and family therapy for 40 years. Her book, Your Journey Beyond Breast Cancer, Tools for the Road, as well as her programs and website, Many Paths to Healing, offer individuals the life skills to cope with the ongoing challenges of cancer. Dr. Lubin, thank you so much for coming on today and talking about your work. Thank you, Andrea, for having me. It's a pleasure, I'm pleased. I am too, I'm so glad we finally made it work. Well, first of all, for the people who are listening and cannot see you, I don't believe that you've been working in this field for 40 years, that's not possible. Just don't look like you're old enough, but I would love for you to sort of take us back even back to your childhood, like, did you want to be a doctor when you grew up? Take us all the way back to there and kind of what got you on this path to begin with.
1: I grew up in Virginia as, a, as an only child. I had older parents. And like a lot of people who become therapists, I would say that I played a therapist role in my family. My mom had serious depression. And that certainly impacted my life. I think I played a therapist role, which is really not that different from a lot of people who become therapists. Actually, though, my whole life, I wanted to be a teacher. And again, from the time I grew up, there weren't a whole lot of options for young girls. You know, you were a teacher or a nurse or a homemaker or, you know, a librarian or whatever. But I always wanted to be a teacher. And I actually got my undergraduate degree in elementary education. And I got married fairly young at 21, graduated college, then got married and taught second grade for two and a half years. That's a good age.
0: It's a a wonderful
1: age, age, but it was really pretty difficult for me. At that time, I had over 30 kids in the classroom. I didn't have an aide, and I was working in an environment that had a lot of challenges, and I really didn't know what had hit me in terms of what it involved being a teacher. I went to school in Washington, D.C. My internship in you know, student teaching was with an environment where kids were yes ma'am and no ma'am, and that wasn't what it was in Richmond, Virginia in 1970. I lasted for two and a half years and I kept wanting to ask the kids, why are you doing what you're doing? Because I often felt like a police person. So I was really unhappy and that was a, that was probably one of the biggest crises in my life in like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. So, like I said, I always was interested in why are the kids doing what they're doing? So I enrolled in graduate school, also in Richmond, and got my master's degree. Now, I will tell you that that was my first exposure to cancer patients. I was involved for my master's thesis in a federal research grant where we were giving capsules of THC, i.e. the active ingredient in marijuana, to head and neck stage four cancer patients. It was a pretty amazing study, and I was gathering information on things like depression and appetite and stuff like that. So that was my first exposure. They were only willing to to try that with people. At that point, stage four head and neck cancer patients were pretty seriously ill people, and and most of those people were in, in very, very, very bad emotional and physical state. That was my first exposure. We then moved to California, and I enrolled in a PhD program, and I was in San Francisco, which was a really exciting place to go to graduate school, and I have always been interested in the connection between the mind and the body. My dissertation was involved with people who have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. And I was focused in my research on the whole aspect of how breathing plays a role in our anxiety. You know, when people can't breathe, they obviously get short of breath and they get anxious. And when people get anxious, they get more short of breath. So the research was about trying to kind of break that cycle and look at two different psychological approaches to do that that was another area of working at how do the mind and the body work together i think we need to all recognize that the natural biological reaction to anxiety brings about shortness of breath okay and for a lot of people just recognizing okay this is what's happening and learning, it's both the cognitive awareness of, wait a minute, I've flipped into that, into that cycle. And then there's the skill of, what are some breathing tools? I say to people that changing your breath is the quickest, easiest, and cheapest way to calm down. People say, oh yeah, but learning how to breathe and recognizing that it's a normal response because... The thoughts that come up are, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die, okay, when you can't catch your breath. Now, what's going to happen when someone is confronted immediately with the thought of, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die? They get more anxious. Yeah. They get more short of breath. So my research was involved in sort of trying to look at that in that population where it is specifically a very big issue. Although, again, it's human. It's not just COPD for sure. Anyway, back to back to the saga here. After after graduate school, we moved back to Tidewater, Norfolk, Virginia. We both had aging ailing parents and I was pregnant. And as much as I loved living in San Francisco in the late 70s, I was interested in kind of creating a different life in a different environment for my for what well, I didn't know then, but my for my son. So we moved back. I guess the other thing that's probably relevant in terms of understanding what I do. My husband, he just recently retired, but my husband is a internist. He established a practice and I had my office next door. So I've always been sort of connected, you know, to a a sort of medical kind of an environment and you know, it's nice to have someone who can help me understand some of the medical pieces. That yeah. as, a, as a clinical psychologist, I wouldn't necessarily have that level of depth. I started my private practice in 1981, and I was always sort of a dinosaur. I was always in solo clinical practice.
0: That, that was unusual. unusual. Yeah. 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 Well, that time. part of the reason
1: we moved from California, because I couldn't get a job. <laughs> Everybody, there was a lot of psychologists and PhDs out Go figure, in California. right, right, right. right. <laughs> So anyway, in 1984, a oncologist who I knew referred me my first cancer patient. And when I think about her and I, I still think about her at that point, Now this was, I mean, look, what are we talking about Uh, almost 40 years ago, 37 years ago or something. This woman was, I think in her, maybe her late forties, she had metastatic disease to her bones at that time. She was amazing. I mean, I was quite, for lack of any other word, pessimistic as to you know how she was, they didn't have the treatments that they have today. And she was given all kinds of treatments, which were new, very new at that point. She was amazing. She was an artist. She used to send me for years cards that she would do uh, at this time of year for the for the holiday. She ran a marathon while she was seeing me, and she lived another sixteen years. Sixteen? I just she, got chills. I kid, get getting hot. She died in two thousand. She lived sixteen years. When you talk about the patient that impacted me the most, I I think, I think actually it might be her. Although there have been. So many amazing clients and patients with whatever word you want to use that i've I've had the opportunity to work with. But she taught me that everybody is an individual and not a statistic.
0: Oh, yes, we say that all the time. Yes. And,
1: you know, i I say that all the time. you know, i I know that when we don't know what's going to happen, We want data we want what about this and what's the percentage and all of that is important but it is so important for any patient no matter whether it's a cancer patient or any other kind of patient to remember that they're an individual and they're not a statistic and what one person's you know development and process is is not necessarily going to be yours now i'm not saying that always reduces the anxiety but it is important to realize that people bring so many different variables to the healing process. Let me just say, because I do think it's really important, healing is not the same thing as cure. When people get a diagnosis, everybody wants a cure. Okay, of everybody course. wants you know the cancer to be gone. Of and course. that's totally understandable. The reality that I have also learned over almost 40 years is that many people live long, productive, effective lives, even though they're managing cancer. Cancer has become as serious as it is, as life-threatening as it can be, it has become as much a chronic disease as it is a life-threatening disease. And learning to live with and beyond cancer, and finding a new balance for oneself. Because that's what healing is. Healing comes from the Greek word halen, which means wholeness. And it's seek we're all seeking healing. We're all seeking healing, but it is different than cure. Cure is the absence of physical disease. And that's what the medical community is focused on doing. They bring those tools. I don't have those tools when I work with people. My tools are to help them find some balance, some new balance, and some healing. And that may involve living with cancer. My focus has always been that people need tools. We don't just come into this world knowing how to deal with things like this. The other thing I want to say, Andrea, is that even though, and again, you mentioned my book, Journey Beyond Breast Cancer, I've worked with patients with lots of different cancers. And I'll tell you something else that I think is, is kind of important. The tools that people need to deal with cancer are not so terribly different from the tools that people need to deal with any kind of loss and trauma. Right. It's a specific loss. It's a specific. There, there are specific issues, okay, to be sure, but the issues that these women are dealing with certainly involve their cancer, but it's not just about cancer, okay? It's about managing uncertainty. It's about managing loss. It's about managing how when you change and your needs change, your relationships change. And realizing what you can and cannot control. That is a major one. I think not just for cancer patients, but for all of us, yeah. you know? <laughs> but for all of us, you know, that coming, coming to terms with what we can and we can't control and how, how to let go of those things that we, we, we can't control. And I think for me, part of what, I am really grateful for is that my patients have been my teachers, they really have been my teachers, and they have taught me the amount of strength and resiliency that, that people have, and that we can't do it alone. we need others. I've learned a lot of life lessons from my from my patients that are also part of the book, but they've taught me they've taught me all of my patients have taught me hopefully. Hopefully I've been a a compassionate, helpful listener and they've been my teachers.
0: Did school, did academia, your PhD program prepare you to be a psychologist?
1: I went to a very academic master's program, but the program that I went to in California, it was kind of novel at the time, okay? And it was based on the concept that they wanted to train people to be therapists as opposed to academics, because most PhD programs in psychology at that point were focused on academia. There was a lot of emphasis on tools and techniques and different orientations as to how to work with people. I feel very fortunate to have been able to go to school at that time in San Francisco, because it was, it was really a mecca for, All kinds of therapies, gestalt therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, all the different techniques and orientations were sort of, you know, Jungian, Freudian, all of them were out there, you know, so I was exposed to a lot. I would tell you that like any career, there's a lot of book learning and there's a lot of learning each day and and continuing to need... You know, to take courses and to expose yourself and, and to be willing, as a therapist, to be really willing to examine yourself and recognize what you bring and how you need to get out of your own way sometimes to be present for people. I will say that I think aging and being able to do this for so long has in itself been, you know, a real, a real life lesson. But as far as specifically working with people who are potentially facing, you know, life threatening illness, I wouldn't say that I got all of that training in that, you know, my first in the PhD that's come, you know, that's come through as psychologists, we have to have continuing education every year, you know, so looking at programs and, A lot of the programs that I have tried to take and you know courses have been focused on that. I would say as far as school, I think I I think I got a lot, but like any in anything, you know, it's just a beginning.
0: I want to go back to something you said about aging. How has aging benefited you? I mean, I wasn't that young when
1: I when I began my practice. I was in the early thirties. I think life experiences. I think experiencing losses. Both my parents died a very long time ago. I was a quote orphan. My dad died in 1975. My mom died in 1980. Dealing with those losses has been a life learning, and I think helped me have a way of understanding loss over a period of time and how that grief manifests over time. I think the longer you do something and if you really keep trying to grow, hopefully you get better at it. And your perspective changes as you age. In preparing, one of your questions was, what would I tell my 16-year-old? You Your know, I think year old self. My, self, right. Yes. My sixteen year old self, right. You know, it's it's probably more about it's it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to fail. You don't have to be perfect to be worthy of love. Oh. And you know, um it's a, it's a line that goes to my heart, and I think we all strive. Perfectionism is is the enemy of all kinds of good health, <laughs> mentally and physically. I just think your perspective changes, at least if you're open to change. I, I think that's a that's a key piece. You know, you've got to got to be open. And that's to hard,
0: change. right? I think I think at the root of almost every single fear is fear of change. Yeah, yeah. I can yeah. all be traced back to fear of and, change, and and yet
1: the only constant. I know and life is it's change,
0: right? Yeah. And to grow as a person, whether it's you know emotionally or spiritually or intellectually or physically, you have to change in some way yeah. in order to grow. and you know, I, I think
1: I think that dress is really about change. whenever you feel that what is being asked of you is more than your ability to cope that experience is stressful now that could be something as positive as a new baby a new job i mean you know but that's that's what stress is how are we going to adapt to that constant changing and this is i think something fairly important with with regard to this andrea I think one of the most important concepts I've learned both professionally and personally is this whole concept of mindfulness. And I'll I'll tell you why I say that with regard to to what we're talking about. Mindfulness is being in the present moment without judgment. Now, that's the the hard part is without judgment. Right. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. And when particularly with regard to cancer. When one is faced with perhaps an unknown future, one is faced with perhaps the shortening of their life or limitations that they never imagined. Lots of people are very healthy when they get a diagnosis of cancer. Oh, yeah. You know, and they don't feel feel sick. The control we have, the only control we have is in the present moment and the more that we can ground ourselves and connect to that present moment the more empowered we feel now the present moment isn't always pleasant (laughs) (laughs) it's not nirvana you know i mean that's 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 what i think has gotten a little little jaded with you know like bliss yourself out you know it's it's not that But it is being able to come back to the present moment and ground yourself.
0: Yeah. And remember, no matter what it is, this too shall pass. No matter what. Because anxiety
1: is always about the future. Yeah. Whatever the content is. Okay. You're scared about this. You're scared about that. You know, and all those fears are, first of all, emotions are not necessarily rational to begin with, okay? And they're biological as well as psychological. But anxiety is always about the future, hmm. and the more you can come back to the present moment, the greater ability you have to bring some skill and some grounding and some awareness to to what's happening, so that you can decide. I I have a I have a mantra that I, I use so much. It's not just, and again, I will say to you that the work I do with cancer patients is not so terribly different than the work I do with all the other patients that I've seen over the years, you know, but my, my big mantra is it's not what if it's what now Hmm. because cognitively, when you start, what ifing, what if this, what if this, what what if, what if the cancer comes back? What if, What if the scan shows this? What if the chemo doesn't, you know, whatever the if is. If you can recognize that that's what you're doing because we are more than our thoughts. We can't control what happens, but we can control the way we think about what's happening.
0: What was or has been your worst moment working as a therapist? I
1: was working with a woman, and, and again, this is not a, a cancer patient, though. Um, I was working with a woman who had lost a child. And I I think that it was too close for me. I think that she had a son, this was a son, and I had a son at the same time who was around that age. And I think that... I was not able to have enough emotional, my boundaries were not good. And I recognized that I, I had I had not, again, that whole idea of having boundaries is really important as a therapist. And I think that it was too close to me. Mm. And it was, it was really painful for her, I think. It's interesting, I hadn't thought about her in a very long time. I felt really badly about the lack of of ability you know oh, to, be, well. to be present for her. although you know again, I you know we learn, you know right. I mean we learn through our mistakes and I also realized that I can't be a therapist to everybody.
0: That's that was right. the other
1: yeah, you know, that was the other learning that I got I got from that one, you know that that there are certain situations that I am best to refer you know yeah. out. and you know as a therapist you've really got to continue to keep to keep learning about yourself one of the requirements of my therapy program in california was that you had to be in therapy
0: Oh yeah. You had to be in therapy. I mean, you're and, you know, listening to people's problems all day and that doesn't yeah. have some kind of impact on you. Well, but I mean... you need to
1: know, you need to know what it's like to be on the other side of the exactly. the, side of the couch, you know? Yeah. And so I, I have had, have, I have had a number of times of therapy in my <laughs> life, particularly, particularly after both of them were motivated after my parents died,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: and, and dealing, dealing with those, those deaths and processing those relationships. But that was one uh, one of one of the times that I really felt badly about myself. I feel very fortunate. I have not, I have not been working with anybody who, at the time they were working with me, committed suicide. That's always something that is of great concern. Years ago, there was a woman that I had worked with who had stopped seeing me for a while. I found out that she had committed suicide, but she wasn't working with me, but that's a heavy, heavy one for a therapist to evaluate that appropriately. That was another sort of jab at my, at my heart.
0: I want to add that to, to that being too close. I once got very close to a patient and I'm a patient advocate. I have my nonprofit. And this was the first patient that I became incredibly close to. She was fighting liver cancer for the second time. We never met in person. We spoke on the phone many times. And our last conversation was her asking me for some tools, if you will, of how to get her family to understand that she was going to die. She Mm. had totally accepted it. She was a nurse. She knew this time she wasn't going to beat it. And she just wanted to prepare everything. And, you know, and she wanted to be home when she passed away. And so she wanted to get everything in order. And her husband and her daughter, who was an adult, could not have the conversation with her. And I got so emotionally involved. And even though I knew she was going to die within the next 12 weeks or so after that conversation. When her daughter emailed me, it was one of a couple of events that all happened at the same time that threw me into a depression that lasted about 20 months and it was awful. It was awful. And it was just too close. It was just, it was just too close. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I've always since had to really, to your point, be aware of boundaries. Yeah. And the book Boundaries is excellent. I recommend it to everyone now. <laughs> I, yeah, wish, I wish, wish yeah. someone recommended that to me a long time ago.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. But yeah,
1: absolutely, I, absolutely. I mean, you you have to. There's a difference between being detached and having boundaries. Yes. And being able to be with someone and also maintain your own separateness is really what the what the boundaries are about. Yeah. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, there are there are triggers for all of us. You know, I mean, I I am I you know, I have those triggers and maybe I've had a lot more opportunities to explore them and to be aware of them, you know. But part of what's effective in therapy is the relationship. And it's absolutely key. So weaving that and and managing that and being a part of that. While still maintaining one's boundaries is, I guess, something that hopefully you get better at the longer you do it. Again, there's no perfection, but you can try and get better.
0: Well, to that point, what is one thing that you wish you had known at the very, very beginning of your career?
1: Probably, what I wish I knew is sort of what we're talking about. You know, being able to recognize those boundaries. You know, being able to recognize that I can be with someone, I can offer what I know to someone, and their willingness and how we connect is going to be as individual, you know, as as each of us. I cannot be a therapist for everybody. That's just not. I don't have that that skill. You know, I want to I want to say this um, because I think it's important. Someone, and I'd like. In, in the best of all worlds, I'd like to think of myself as a healer. And let me tell you what I mean by that. A healer is someone who helps someone else connect to the healing power inside of them. It's not an I-thou relationship. Okay? It's a, it's a relationship of, of equals. And if there would be any wish... Of, of what I've been able to do. It's to provide that kind of healing space for people. But it is helping individuals get in touch with the healing power within them and mm. finding their strength. How well I've done that, I don't know. Okay. But I've, I've certainly tried to create that safe space, you know, for, for, for people.
0: I'm sure you've, done a wonderful job. If this inter- interview is any indication. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. All right, here comes the tough question. Love, love to ask clinicians and healthcare providers this question, especially if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why?
1: That's an easy one, actually, for me to answer.
0: I wish that there
1: was more awareness of the importance of mental health. I wish that there was more accessibility for mental health services. I wish that that there was reimbursement also, you know, that, you know, a lot of insurance companies don't even cover any kind of mental health coverage. I wish there was, and this is beyond just the healthcare, I wish there was less of a stigma yes. about about mental health and that people realize that for example depression is not a sign of weakness that as human beings we're going to have times when we may need we may need help i think that you know again i mean i think this pandemic unfortunately has blown even more in our face. Has your practice
0: skyrocketed? I have to ask.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I only work part-time, so it's somewhat limited in terms of the numbers, you know, of people, but uh, again, everyone who is caught, I mean, there are no therapists available. It's unbelievable. I think that that would be the biggest, the biggest thing I would say. I mean, has it gotten better than maybe it was 40 years ago. Yeah, but it's still got a long ways to go. I started practicing when people wouldn't even say the cancer word, you know, it was the big C. Being able to even say the word cancer has been an evolution in the way that we, we approach and recognizing that people, people will experience emotional cha- challenges. But that's what I'd like with healthcare. You know, that there was not only recognition, less stigma, but accessibility and coverage for people so that people can can afford to get the help that they that they need.
0: That by the way is one of the top two answers I get now. So I do mm-hmm. think there's a, a growing awareness of yeah. the need. Yeah. I, I, I mean, really I think do.
1: it's it's screaming at us. Yeah. You know, it's screaming at us. And I think that that would, whatever can be done in that way. I also think that, you know, recognizing that it's, it's not, it's not a weakness to acknowledge, you know, that, that you're struggling. I would say this, just in terms of this whole idea of the pandemic. To me, uh, Andrea, in addition to all the lessons that I have learned from, from this pandemic or trying to learn. The idea of how we're all connected is just such a major, major focus in in terms of, you know, I mean, we are all connected. This pandemic, I think, has really shown us that wherever in the world you are living, we are all connected.
0: All right, Dr. Lubin, are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire question? All right. I am. I am. Beach, desert or mountains? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? This was a tough one, but I picked the Rolling Stones. (laughs) Ah, really? Okay. I did. I did. What is one word that best describes you? Probably responsible. (laughs) Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? I'm just going to tell you three songs
1: that I love. (laughs) choose one. I really love (laughs) Landslide by Stevie Nicks. I really love Forever Young by Bob Dylan. The song that I've been singing lately to my two granddaughters is a song from My Fair Lady that is called Wouldn't It Be Lovely.
0: Okay, how about the last meal you want to eat?
1: Oh, definitely chocolate ice cream.
0: The last person or people you will see.
1: Yeah. It 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 clearly it clearly is my my family. I've told my husband that he has no choice. You know, I'm going first. I told him that, but <laughs> we'll see if that happens. I would ideally love to have my family around me because I think that's uh that's the 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 best death that I that I might choose if I had that choice.
0: <laughs> and the last words you will speak.
1: Pretty clearly, I love you.
0: And aside from Cancer U, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And be sure to tell people how they can get in touch with you.
1: I've got a lot of resources for cancer patients, but they're not necessarily just for cancer. A major resource that I tell lots of people is called theconversationproject.org. It is a marvelous resource for dealing with the conversation that nobody wants to have until it's too late. I'm a big fan of Sounds True, which is an online resource of books, audio, programming, uh, excellent resource, as well as the greater good, which comes out of Berkeley. I would welcome, if people would like to get in touch with me, through my website, uh, manypaths2healing.com. there's a, a link To you know, to an email, Dr. Lubin at Many Paths to Healing, and I would welcome anybody getting in touch with me. And
0: I just want to thank you very much. I've I've probably talked your ear off. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you, and I also want to share with people that I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Lubin about her book for our live Ask the Author session. And so, please look in the show notes and the workshop notes for the link to the Ask the Author. We're gonna do a deep dive in that live interview all about her book, which is just a tremendous resource for cancer patients. Thank you so much for for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers Podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Rivers podcast. Real people, true stories.